Shall we begin? Um, I don't know when we decided we were going to do Isaiah. Um, huh? Way back. Way back. In the way back machine, we decided we were going to do Isaiah probably somewhere in the summer. Um, and I'm sure whenever we made that decision, many of you were like, ugh, that sounds long. I thought Zechariah was long. Isaiah sounds long and awful. Um, it is long, it's not awful. But others of you may have thought of, um, I want to study Isaiah because I want to get to this chapter. This is the quintessential Isaiah chapter that even those of us who have never sat down to read through um, the whole book, we do see um, this book either referenced in the New Testament, parts of it are quoted in the New Testament, if you've ever taken an apologetics class, this is one of the primary Old Testament proof texts for um, justifying that Jesus was who he said he was and that he fulfilled the role that he said he would fulfill. Um, if any of you were with us in what we used to call the theology program, where we'd have those long-winded classes on Monday nights um, years ago, in... Um, I guess it would have been in the bibliology class, the class on whether or not we can trust the Bible. Isaiah into 52 and all through 53 was often dragged out as this proof text for, read this passage, tell me who this is describing. And even the most staunch unbeliever would say, well, this seems to be describing Jesus, at least as the New Testament describes him. And while Isaiah would have been written about seven, eight hundred years prior to Jesus showing up, we do have copies of the book of Isaiah that predate Jesus. We don't have anything as old as Isaiah itself. We, we, there's no such thing as a copy of any original book of the Bible. They're just, they're powder in the sand somewhere. We'll never find them, I'm quite sure. Um, but we do have copies. I think the oldest copy of Isaiah, it dates back to three to 350 B.C., so still 300 years, longer than America has been a country, 300 years older, we have this text written down by some Jewish scribe, copied off of the original at some point. And so we know this has to predate Jesus. This can't be something that was written after the fact. We have definitive proof that this was written beforehand. If you wanted to be super, super conservative, go with the Isaiah date if you want to throw that out and say Isaiah couldn't have possibly written it, then some smart guy about 300 years beforehand did. This is a huge text in the apologetics in terms of trusting um, the truthfulness of Scripture in areas of prophecy. A lot of people can, can deal with the historical aspect of Scripture, but it's the prophetic text. This one's too accurate, I know. So either someone made it up after the fact, which our old manuscripts disprove, or it's just true. That's kind of the way the apologetics guys look at it. And so we pull this text out a lot. And, it, and I think that's a great way to use it. I think it's a great reason to turn to it. Um, probably not the first, second, or third, maybe even fourth most important to reason to turn to this passage. Um, as we go through this today, you're just going to see there's so much here about Jesus. Well, let's, let's just leave it in Isaiah's context. About the servant. About God about God's people, about how God behaves, about how His servant will behave, about what He expects of His people. There's so much here before I ever get to the issue of apologetics that I think are greater um, issues. And so, if you, if you read through that first um, paragraph, you'll notice that last week we left off in 51.11, and we are not going to, we don't have, we just need to be done um, we need to get through Isaiah, and there's some places where I slowed down more than I thought I would um, when I laid out the book. But And my intention is the Sunday after Thanksgiving to begin an Advent series in here, so we'll do four weeks. Um, we'll become high church for a little while and follow a little bit of the uh, lectionary and the liturgical calendar, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. Um, and I, and I, and I, bet, I bet Jim could make some recommendations too, in the, in the Christmas season, there are actually other churches that I really enjoy going to some of the seasonal um, gatherings they have and worship services as we get into. If you've never been to a um, 
a Catholic church during the Christmas season, it's well worth your time, and you can really get over your hatred of the Pope for a bit. It is, it is a worshipful experience that we have a very hard time achieving here. And um, so, as we get into the Advent series, that's why I want to finish Isaiah, so we can do that kind of stuff and, and make some recommendations along those lines. There's a website that is a common, called The Text This Week, The Text This Week, and it follows the lectionary, and it has Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic, Episcopal, hmm. uh, and it's just called thetextthisweek.com. They have wonderful articles about all sorts of things. They have archives. You can look at different scriptural references. But if you're interested in Advent, and if you're interested in following it, thetextthisweek.com. Um. Well, we'll end, we'll end talking about kind of some of my personal convictions about Bible study. But if you've never looked through a lectionary, there can be um, something really good about you not making the decisions about how you're going to engage Scripture, letting someone else make those decisions for you. And lectionaries do a great job of forcing you to engage the Gospels regularly, to engage the Psalms regularly, to engage the Pentateuch regularly. There's a, there's a freedom in not having to decide, well, I just really want to study Colossians, and I'm going to study Colossians for the next six months. And I would, my recommendation would be, okay, just know at the expense of other things. Colossians is not the height of Scripture, and therefore I wouldn't dwell there um, at the exclusion of other things. Perhaps for a bit but not for very long. And so I really like lectionaries. So if you, um, for like my, my devotional reading where I'm not studying, so I have, I have Bibles that I write in to study and to teach, and then I have just de- Bibles that I read for devotional reasons, and I, and I typically, I, it's not uncommon that I'll pull out the Book of Common Prayer, or I will go to one of these websites that have the lectionary built in, and I will just kind of submit myself to the calendar they have um, they've organized the yearly calendar that such that we we are always preparing for something or reflecting on something as the Christian calendar falls. So um, anyway, I want to finish Isaiah um, so that we can get to those kind of things. And I think that um, the Christmas season is to me more important than Christmas Day, um, especially because Jesus was probably born in April anyway. Um, there's something about the pregnant anticipation of the Christmas season that um, I think we miss out on if we don't get out ahead of it. So, that being said, we're going to skip 51.12 through 52.12, but here I I just scribbled out a quick summary of it for you so you know where we are as we jump into the fourth servant song. couple of lines down on that first paragraph. For the sake of time, we won't be able to cover 51.12 through 52.12. To summarize, God calls his exiled people to wake up, to remember his everlasting covenant with them, and to embrace the forgiveness that he's offered. Though the, notion, uh, though the nation still sat in the territory of Babylon, she was no longer condemned. Chapter 52 reminds the people that they are still loved and valued, that the Lord views them as his bride, his queen, and his people. And it's one of those comforting chapters, encouraging the people. This section ends with the call to depart, depart. That would be verse 11. To live as though the Lord could spring them from the kingdom of Babylon at any moment. A new exodus is on the horizon and God calls his people to be ready. This readiness, much like our own eagerness to leave a dark, evil empire, is found in a response to the servant. To live out the mission of holy priests, which they are commissioned to do, um, and we'll, we'll read verses 11 and 12 just to set the context. To live out their mission of holy priests is to leave captivity and step into the light of God found in and through his servants. So here's how the section we skipped ends. So here, this is verses 11 and 12. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Notice the differences between this and the Exodus account. The Exodus account is... Just level the nation. Take everything they've got. Just say, you got it, I want it, and you're going to give it to me, and we're going to leave Egypt. 
Contrary to that, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. There's a new purity to be found. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves. You who bear the vessels of the Lord. That's a priestly description. For you shall not go out in haste as you did in Egypt. And you shall not go in flight as you did in Egypt. For the Lord will go before you as he did in Egypt. And the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So he says, much like you left Egypt, God will be with you. But unlike Egypt, this won't be as a weak nation. You will be powerful. There's, a, there's something new about this exodus that's different from the old exodus. And the nation is leaving as a nation of priests carrying these vessels, and they've been purified. And yet, when they do this, so imagine you're in Babylon reading this, and you say, sure, but the nation is still broken. The nation is still wicked. We aren't priests. We aren't pure. You've spent a lot of time, Isaiah, telling us that. How... This is where you got to know God in order to ask the right questions. How can He be just and make us priests? How can He be good and ignore our sin? And the servant song comes in and answers those questions. And the servant song says He doesn't ignore them. He deals with them. And so we get into, I think, the crown jewel of Isaiah's... Um, Isaiah's prophecy here. Hope. Are we going from Babylon still in captivity and exile back to Jerusalem? Or is that what he's talking about? Yeah. So and still in exile. Still in exile. The, the book will, like the book is finished, it's written, and they're still in exile. Um, depending on how you want to deal with authorship, it was written before they even went to exile. Or the back half was written in exile, but none of it, I mean, all of it is before they go home, to whatever degree that works out. It's, uh, Hope brings up a good point, though, that when we read Isaiah 53, this is such a Christian text. This is so full of um, what we believe are obvious allusions to who Jesus is that it's important that we don't rip it out of its original audience's context. This had to mean something to the Hebrews. Uh, They left and they went home. They did go back to Jerusalem. This servant hadn't showed up. What are they they to believe? Um, This is is the text, the great text that Jews and Christians will divide over. We say it's Jesus, they say it's Israel. Who's the servant, Jesus or Israel? And I think we probably do everyone a disservice by having to pick one. There is a, um, there's a God, there's a providential power in the text that allows it to be Israel and then later allows it to be Jesus more and fully so. So this text has to mean something to the original audience. And I think we forget that. If I'm, if I'm an Israelite and Cyrus says, go home, rebuild your temple, rebuild your city, do everything. The Lord has told me you should do this. Go do it. Here's my blessing. If I'm an Israelite and I have no concept of who this servant is, okay, well, is Isaiah wrong? Was God wrong? Where's the servant? In many cases, I, I, I think that we could... We could build a strong case for Israel needed to understand the servant as them, as the ones who will be broken. Um, and yet there's still some mystery to how all this stuff plays out because after all, their own death and their own you know, suffering doesn't purchase for anyone the redemption that's described. So there's a lot of tension here. Israel believes it's them. Jews today believe it's Israel. We believe it's Jesus. I believe it was originally Israel and Jesus supersedes it all later on. Um, Paul does this in a lot of places where he'll take a prophecy that meant something, and he won't tell you, actually, this is what it always meant. He'll say, now this is what it means. There's a reinterpretation that you get to play in this game in the New Testament. 
where you say, that meant that then. Now, in light of the mystery now revealed, in light of the coming of the Son, this is what it means. There's a reinterpretation. I think it's a, a uh, retooling of the Scriptures that the New Testament kind of confusingly does, but we have to let it do what it does. So, Hope brings up a good point. Israel believes they are the servant, or at least they have no reason to believe otherwise. Um, we read this and we say, single person. Um, we think individually, they think corporately. And so, it's probably only with great time passing that they start to wonder if this is an individual person. But, I digress. So, here is the famous fourth servant song of Isaiah, starting in 52.13. We can break this down in one, two, three, four, five main sections. If you can kind of see where the... Sometimes it's harder to see in poetry, but you can see where the paragraph breaks are. So this first section, verses 13, 14, and 15, says this. Behold. um, Anywhere you see behold, by the way, we just breeze past that. We, um, We ignore the fact that the Bible is demanding that you stop and marvel at something. Um... The most used word in the, uh, or the most given command in the book of Revelation is behold. Stop and marvel. Look at this. Drives me nuts. The NIV took it out because they thought it was an insignificant word. Really, you took out the number one command of Revelation. So they just, we we view it as a bit of a non-word, but it is a command. Stop and marvel at what I'm about to tell you. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Um, remember those words. We'll come back to that and jump into the Gospel of John in just a second. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred. Now remember, he just said he will be high, exalted, lifted up, glorified, made much of, yet his appearance was so marred. Beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. By I'm Israel... Yeah, that sounds like us. We've been subjugated. We've been, we've been brutally imprisoned. Our, our city has been torn to bits. We seem as though we've been marred. And in, in that disfigurement, verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations, um, sprinkling, whether it's blood, water, uh, oil, it's a cleansing ceremony. It's a ritual that cleanses. In his suffering, in his disfigurement, he will cleanse many nations. Not just Israel, many nations. Again, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told um, them, they, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So you see here, God's wisdom is revealed. And it comes in the form of deep suffering. And yet that deep suffering purchases some degree of purification for the nations. Now, I want to go back up to that this servant, the wisdom of God himself, will be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Um, We call, or maybe I just call it, um, trying to get a trend going, Isaiah, the fifth gospel. Um, And I don't think that that the New Testament writers would have objected to that all that much. John picks up on this particular theme, the exaltation of the servant and... Um, this might be the case of the um, post-cross reinterpretation of who the servant is, because here's what it says in John 3, 14. This is Jesus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, a title of judgment, so must the Son of Man, the title he takes from Daniel 7, be lifted up. He shall be high and lifted up, Isaiah 52, 13. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, John 3, 14. So that whoever believes in Him, in His exaltation, whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Flip over to John 8. He keeps playing the game. John 8, 28. Um, Jesus is giving all this. This is the I'm the light of the world um, dialogue or narrative. He says 
in John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, they didn't understand that he was talking about his relationship to God the Father. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, there's that exaltation language again, you will know that I am He. Hmm. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. That sure sounds like God and His servant, who is, again, high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And finally, turn to chapter 12 of John's Gospel. This is one of those moments where God audibly speaks. He says, Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Talking about Father Jesus' request that the Father would glorify His name. The crowd that stood there heard it, and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to Him. But Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. And so shall he cleanse. It says many nations, but we can use the John word, all people. John is grabbing this theme and putting it everywhere. Actually, if you look at the back half of John, if you look at chapters 12 through um, 20, you'll see this is the the exaltation side of John's Gospel. And anywhere where he uses words like glory or glorified, he's picking up on this idea of the exalted servant. And he, I think he masterfully, in nine chapters, paints Jesus to be this servant. I don't know if Jesus was this servant from the beginning. I think that in Jesus' life and his ministry and his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and then return, he becomes this servant. I think this was meant for Israel to understand themselves in this chapter. And then John says, now let me change that. Not let me help you see what it was and what it always was. Let me change that. It's a game the apostles get to play that we're going to trust the Spirit in this. But um, if you'll notice that where John does it, he's just recording Jesus' words. So maybe it's a game the servant himself can play. So, God's wisdom is revealed in these first three verses, and that comes in deep suffering. And from that deep suffering, you have ceremonial cleansing or purifying of the nations. Starting in uh, verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? You'll notice the servant never speaks in this song. It's only his witnesses testifying about him. There is a silent uh, majesty in one who can live this story and stay silent and just... Not say a word. My mind goes to Jesus standing in front of his accusers, just taking the beating, refusing to fight back or to speak out of turn. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, a picture of surprising life in the midst of death. So you can think of a, a, a spiritual wasteland. And yet there is this shocking little shoot of life. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This magnificent, high, lifted up, exalted servant just looks like a common man. Even worse than that, he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Um, it's one thing to say that mankind despised and rejected him, but if you look at the end of verse 3, even the witnesses reject him. Even those who are called to follow him and obey him as the previous um, servant songs have instructed them to do, turn their faces from him. To deny someone the dignity of looking them in the face. We won't even, won't even do that. Going that is just such a powerful thing, like one from men to hide their face. Mm-hmm. 
it's just such a powerful statement of how deeply rejected. You are a total, complete outcast to the extent that I will not even let my eyes fall upon you. And that is as much pushing someone to the very furthest outside of society. That's as far as you can push them. Yeah. We don't have the same sentiments today, but in the ancient world, to not look someone in the eye is to dehumanize them. It's to say, you are less than me. Much like uh, in an honor and shame society, much like table fellowship would indicate who my peers are. And a lack of table fellowship will indicate who I don't care for. And the servant is clearly being ostracized from every facet of society. When men reject him, despise him, and even his own witnesses won't look at him. Starts to paint the picture of the degree of, um, if you jump to, to Jesus, the degree of shame, humiliation, and separation he experienced on our behalf. I always, I always kind of, yes. Um, no, because I would say that Israel would likely see itself in each of the servant songs. So this is the fourth one, and there's a fifth one at the beginning of, I think, 61. Um, I cannot see a reason why Israel would not view herself as this male servant. Um, so no, I don't know that I'd have to really go back and look at it, but typically when you're describing Israel... Proper, you'll use feminine pronouns, but I think that Israel would be taking on the mantle of the servant, at least in their own mind, and maybe even rightfully so in each of the songs. So I don't, I'll have to go look, but I'd be surprised if this was the very first time. Um, to, to emphasize the kind of the, the darkness experienced by the servant here, um, it always, it always kind of, uh, it actually chokes me up to think through that Jesus is is literally holding everything together by by the word of his mouth, by by his power. He permits things to exist. <coughs> like your lungs are moving air because he's he's allowing that, and and I think he's enabling that, empowering that. And the, the humility that, that this servant, as Jesus takes on the mantle, that he, that he demonstrates as he is despised, rejected, and esteemed not, as even his own followers refuse to look at him. That's, that's an interesting picture of Peter, perhaps. Um, how humble must you be to be the most powerful being ever, 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 without any comparison whatsoever? And to let something you're permitting to live flog you. To allow soldiers you're permitting to continue breathing and their brain stems to keep functioning to nail you to a cross. By the way, with nails, you're holding the carbon together with the word of your mouth. Like You are being subject to your own creation and completely violated by how much humility is demonstrated by that act. Not only, it's not passive. I really don't think it's passive. I think it is an active laying down. He is, he is allowing all of this to happen because he's continuing to enable soldiers to breathe, nails to hold together, wood to stay in the shape of wood, all this stuff. And he says, I'll let it happen. Like, to me, I can't think of anything more humiliating and more humble and more self-sacrificing than this, than one who would, um, as you'll see, suffer in silence here in a bit. There's a, in, in this, there's an example to us that when we're somewhat shamed by some standard that's not a reasonable standard, that we shouldn't worry about being shamed about a standard that's not 
holy spiritual scriptural standard if we're shamed because we don't <coughs> do things like somebody else does then well so be it yeah yeah right I've always thought the saddest verse in the Bible is he came into his own and his own received him not mm-hmm. that's the saddest verse in the whole Bible mm-hmm. and the most beautiful too right it's like it's it's that flip like this is horrible and then when we see in verses 10 11 and 12 what takes place as a result it's like oh this is powerful it's beautiful and uh you know it's like i i marvel at people that do things that i could have never devised in my own mind and it's like yeah if i were going to write the story of redemption it would not look like this it looked a lot closer to maybe the movie Gladiator and other things where there's just, we, by brute force, defeat evil. And it's like, actually, I'm going to do it like a servant. I'm going to look like a sucker the whole time. And watch me end up, as John will point out, high, lifted up, and exalted. Yes? I think it's important to remember the submission to the Father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the agony of Gethsemane is just the perfect picture of someone who, because you said, this is the way it's going to go, I'm going to take it on the chin. And he, um, it's important to remember that he is an equal with the Father. And he chooses to subjugate himself to the Father's will. In his essence, the Son is God, is God the Father's equal. And he, by choice, places himself under the authority of the Father and says, whatever you want, I'll do it. Now, the funny thing is, they can't want different things. <laughs> so you see this, this um, crazy tension between um, the agony of human flesh suffering and about to suffer and a perfect God who says, no. You know, Jesus wants what God, what God the Father wants. They don't ever disagree. You, you can see Paul taking this on in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. In this passage, the servant was Israel, redefined as Jesus. And Paul says, and now I'm going to live out the servant's mission myself. I think that's the church's calling, is to, to look in this passage and see what it looks like to serve the will of God the Father in a sacrificial way, in a way that doesn't count our own comfort as anything all that important. Um, I don't really think it's all that Christian to insist on your rights. This is me being anti-American. Um, <laughs> I really don't think demanding my rights is a Christian virtue. I think I can be thrilled to death when I get them and not that bent out of shape when I'm denied them. Um, because I think service, when despised, when rejected, when subdued by something other than yourself is admirable. And so um, I, love, I love telling the story of a guy who's a... He used to go to church here. He lives in Illinois now, works at a church up there. And he, was, um, he and I were in a debate over, I was defending someone else's right to not vote. Like, I, I'll vote. Um, but I was defending someone else's right to not vote. And he was antagonizing them by saying, if you don't vote, you are effectively giving up your right to complain for four years. And I said, why do you need that right? Like, when, since when is complaining a Christian virtue? Why do I need to purchase that right with a vote that I, my conscience can't do? And so I said, why don't you get off his back and let him not vote? Um, complaining's not Christian. Um, long-suffering is. So I said, I hope whoever you like loses and you have to learn for four years what it's like to suffer well. And then I had to go repent because I was getting riled up. But... Um, <laughs> I think there is, there is something beautiful about living in a, in a, in a, a nation that does offer rights to its citizens. I, I'm, not, I'm not ignoring that. But to think that um, 
when I'm denied those rights that it's really that big of a deal is to just, okay. What if you were like the second person of the Trinity and you completely denied yourself every right you had and were brutally murdered and tortured by your creation? Oh, okay. So, you're whatever. We get wound up. I do anyway. Okay, moving on. Before I spiral out of control here. Verse 4. <laughs> says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. So, again, the witnesses have turned on him. The world has turned on him. But let's see what this actually produces. This is why it is the saddest section in Scripture and, at the same time, the most profound. He has borne our griefs. So, a man acquainted with grief, up in verse 3, is now in verse 4, bearing our griefs. He's carried our sorrows, when in verse 3, he was a man of sorrows. He is taking our grief, our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Now, here's the fancy part. Smitten by God and afflicted. We did nothing to him. The, the, if you want to go to the Sadducees and their collusion with the Pharisees and the Romans. They did nothing to him. Who killed Jesus? The Father killed Jesus. Famous John Stott quote, we say it all the time, God gave himself to himself to save us from himself. Satan didn't kill Jesus. Rome didn't kill Jesus. Pilate had very little to do with it. Judas had nothing to do with it. If anything, the New Testament just portrays all those people as pawns. And God is the puppet master working out what he wants to take place. The Father killed Jesus. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Why? He was pierced for our transgressions, not for his own. He was crushed for our iniquities, not for his own. And upon him was the chastisement that what? Brought us peace. You see this incredible exchange, this transaction taking place here. See, this is where, this is the section where Israel is like, yep, 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 that sounds like, oh wait, I have no idea how we're going to do that. This is the section where Israel has no idea what's going on. And I think it's this section where confusion after confusion after confusion and spiritual blindness and hard-heartedness after hard-heartedness. The disciples don't get it. And when he resurrects, everything starts clicking. I think they start to see the transaction taking place. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So God's wisdom is revealed through deep suffering, which brings purification. The servant is despised and rejected, but in that rejection, God rejects him too. And in so doing, you have the exchange. He takes our griefs and our sorrow, and we get peace and healing. He gets our iniquity. Yes? I think they would have struggled to apply this to themselves. Um, although, they could, have, they could have said, in our punishment, um, God is now satisfied and will be leaving. Um, they could, and, and, and Isaiah says as much. You're done. I mean, that's the, that's the section that unfortunately we had to skip. Um, Verse 51, verse 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. That is, you have taken the full brunt of God's judgment. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console, console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? 
Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, uh, your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. And it goes on and on and on. It says, your judgment is in effect complete. And so they could have read verses 4 through 6 of chapter 53 in that light. I still think they would have had problems with it. Um, basically because I've never heard a Jew really explain this chapter well. Like they do it great in general terms. The servant is Israel. Really? How does this? The servant is Israel. Really, but I, I want to talk about that verse. Like, I've never, and I'm sure I could go to some rabbinical stuff and find some better explanations, but I've just never heard it done in a way that satisfies to the degree that Jesus satisfies this passage. Um, and that's probably by design. I mean, I would, I would have to say, God gives this for Israel. And it's for Israel partially so. And it's for Jesus fully so. And so, I think whenever we look at it in Jesus, okay, well, all the stats on the baseball card fit Jesus. And we have the, you know, it kind of fits Israel, but the shoe is just a little too big. Maybe Jesus fills this better than Israel does. Um, Sometimes we, in our, in our kind of modern conceptions of accuracy and precision, force the text to do more than it's able to do. Um, I don't know if Israel would have had a good answer for verses 4, 5, and 6, but I don't know if they would have felt all that bothered by it either. They already had an answer for atonement and the sacrifice in the temple. Yep. So they had an answer in that day and time for that question of atonement. In regard to the sermon, they tried many, many names. <laughs> they they tried did. a bunch of names to put in there, and they never, ever found a satisfactory one. And somewhere in 800 or so, some rabbi finally said, that's Israel, and that's been it from like 800 or 900 on. Yeah. So in Jesus' day, they were actually looking for a revolutionary-type figure that would um, probably... I don't know. It would have looked a lot like... This is why they loved the, the Maccabean family, because they went through a lot of hell to pay. Like They, they were slaughtered. They, had, they fought brutal wars. They, they went up against the, the untamable enemy. And they were actually quite successful for a while. Um, and so a lot of people looked at these, and yet um, it just doesn't last. It doesn't last. So, yeah. with Eventually... The schools just said, well, let's just call it like a corporate Israel and move on. Because, probably because the Christians were handing them their lunch with how to read this chapter. But, verse 7. So, we've seen the transaction take place. Now, let's look at how he suffers. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Mind goes to the vision of the lamb standing as though slain in Revelation. I think it's Revelation 4, maybe 5. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now this section, when it ends, we find out that he was so despised and rejected that it ended in death. And if I am an early reader of this, I would be like anxiously waiting to know, like, did that make God happy? This is a little bit of a surprising twist. The servant is dead now. Is God satisfied? Okay. Verse 10 starts to answer that question. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It's not as though the servant just happened to die. God killed him. It was his will to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, 
He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And then here's that kicker. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That's the servant. The implication is it doesn't end in death. He'll see what takes place and he'll be satisfied. The servant himself is now the one who is satisfied. Now, this is a very um, veiled allusion to the necessity of the resurrection in this whole process. Um, it's, it's sometimes surprising to many of us to find out that um, Jesus dying on the cross is not enough to pay for your sins. He had to resurrect or you're, you're still dead. Like your sins are not paid for if he doesn't come back to life. The last verse of Romans 4 says as much. Um, I'm going to do Romans 4, 22 to the end. Paul says this, This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, talking about Abraham. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised uh, from the dead Jesus our Lord. And then here is that famous, famous line, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You are not right with God if Jesus does not resurrect from the dead. And way back here, you see this take place. Why? Because um, He can pay for your sins, but He, can't purchase, he cannot, like uh, other places in the New Testament will draw, His ability to regenerate you in the resurrection. There is, in many ways, it's unexplained. But the resurrection is... is distinctly tied to the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So that's why in, um, in Romans 6, you had dead to sin, alive in Christ. Like I, I really believe that baptism is symbolic. Baptism is tradition. Baptism is a proclamation, but it's a, it's a real picture of something that real that happens, that when one comes to faith in Jesus and trusts and believes and repents, there is a new life, a resurrection that takes place right then and there. And um, without new life, you're dead. Without new life, there is no new life. And without explaining it too much, the, Paul specifically ties that to the resurrection, especially the power of the resurrection. And um, he doesn't go into a whole lot of detail, but he says you, Jesus was raised for our justification, meaning so that we would be right with God. Um, salvation, this is going to be a fun topic that Jim and I are going to do in the next hour in the membership class. Um, salvation, we've talked about it many times in here, is just such a loaded term, an umbrella term that involves so many things. You were saved, you are saved, you are being saved, you were justified, you are um, being sanctified, you will be glorified. Actually, some places it even says, you were sanctified, you are being justified. One day you'll be justified. It's like the New Testament can't make up its mind how it talks about this. It's like it just swirls around this topic and says to some degree it's mysterious. But for whatever reason, at the end of Romans 4, Paul lands on, without Jesus raising from the dead, you're still dead in your sins. And you can probably see that fleshed out a little better in 1 Corinthians 15 where he really goes after it and it tumbles over one another. But way back here in Isaiah 53, we see the kind of the, the inklings of the, of the resurrection. But the servant lives. After death, he lives. Um, by his knowledge, this is the uh, second half of verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And that that uh, by his knowledge pushes me back to... 52.13, where my servant acts wisely. He's the, the very wisdom of God. Paul picks up on that. Um, the Apostle John picks up on that. Um, I think I think we've talked about this in here before. I'm losing track of where I say things. Um, I think Proverbs 8 and 9 are biographies of Jesus. The wisdom of God, the wisdom of God personified in Proverbs 8 and 9. Um, 
I think they're, I think they just describe Jesus. I need to stop looking or I'll just read it all. Um, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is a, this is a picture of a conqueror distributing wealth, of a, an heir distributing inheritance, which is Paul in Galatians. Because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, sinless though he was, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Um, That last line. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. How much hope would that line give to a people in a foreign land without their temple? who've lost the ability to offer their sacrifices as they were instructed, who've lost their ability for priests to intercede on their behalf to God. And um, that last line of verse 12, if the servant full, like does this, if he fulfills this role, the, the one that bears the sins and makes intercession, my mind just goes to the book of Hebrews. The great high priest um, Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I have a hard time seeing how this is not Jesus. Um, I, I think, well, I have a hard time seeing it because I trust the New Testament. Maybe that's the difference between me and a good Orthodox Jew. <laughs> um, and I have the Spirit, so there's a difference too. Um, but this is, this is such a powerful passage about who God is, what He's doing, who the servant is, what He's doing, and who the witnesses, that would be us, who we are and how we are supposed to, I think, model ourselves after the servant. So... Um, to wrap up, um, I, I, I've said this kind of, that we should be students of the gospel. Um, and I think Isaiah is the fifth gospel. So, here's your last little section. Well, actually, I want to read this Barry Webb quote. I, I really enjoyed this. He said this, Many, many facets of the servant's character are revealed in this song. He is sage, priest, sacrifice, servant, sufferer, conqueror, and intercession. He is the channel of God's grace to sinners. In Him, the holiness and mercy of God are perfectly reconciled. He is the key to all God's plans for His people and for the world. And don't forget the question they're asking as we move into this song is, if you want us to leave and be holy priests and to be pure, how does that how does that intermingle with your justice and your holiness? And Barry Webb helps us see through the servant who resolves these issues. So in light of this, uh, we end up with this. We should be students of the Gospels. Followers of Jesus have rightfully consumed, been consumed with the testimonies given in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John since their recording in the first century. In these four books, we find the highest degree of revelation by God through His Spirit-enabled authors to the church. I do believe those, the four Gospels, the testimony of Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, I believe they are the apex of Scripture. I believe that no other book is as important. Every book is inspired, but they're not equally important. They're all important, not equally so. The Bible is not flat. <coughs> I bet you I could cut the book out of Habakkuk out of most of your Bibles and you would not know for the next two years. Um, I bet I could pick almost all the minor prophets and just put like Huckleberry Finn in there and you'd never know. Um, and that's, A, we should, we should enjoy the full counsel of Scripture. But B, I wouldn't necessarily apologize if you're spending all your time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I would hit Acts and I would hit Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Psalms and Isaiah But those four books are the most important, hands down. 
the life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus Christ is virtually unknowable without the four Gospels of the New Testament. To which someone could say, yeah, but the early church didn't use those books. I know, but they had eyewitness testimony about Jesus. So unless you know an apostle walking around, you need the eyewitness testimony of Jesus. We need those four books. Were we to seriously study these four books to the degree they merit our time and effort, I'm convinced we would all look much more like Jesus himself. Especially if you read the Sermon on the Mount every day for the rest of your life. One simple bit of advice. When it comes to your Bible study, let the minors be the minors. A lot of times we are fascinated with something just because it's new. So you'll love Habakkuk or Joel. Great books, not as important as John. Spend the majority of your time in the books that most clearly testify to who Jesus is and what he would have us do. That being said, Isaiah functions as a sort of fifth gospel. Our passage today offers such a clear picture of the Messiah. In it, we see his work on our behalf, as well as the model of a life lived in devotion to God. Along with Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and the Psalms, Isaiah is one of those Old Testament books that will greatly impact your ability to know and be known by God, pleasing Him and leading to greater degrees of holiness. So, we have a few minutes. I want to end with this. Um, I'll just kind of let whoever wants to talk, talk. What is your plan of Bible study? That's what I want to know. Feel free to take turns, not all at once. What is your Bible study plan? How do you engage the truth of God's Word? And I don't have a plan as a plan. It's just a bad one. So we all have one. What's your plan? Like, we're going to study a book. How do we do it? What are you doing now? So how are you reading Hebrews? Well, I listen. We're just doing the first six chapters, so I listen to it in different translations. And then Show off. Chunk by chunk, and so those chunks, before I look at any commentary or whatever, I look at it for myself. Okay. So that's like study, study. Do you do devotional reading? Like, you know, flip to a psalm, point your finger there, and say, God wanted me to read that? I don't do I don't like that anyway. So. Okay. Who else? What's your plan? I look at areas that I, <clears throat> that I don't know much, that I don't understand. I look for areas that I don't feel that I'm comfortable with or understand. And I go there and try to work on those areas that I don't understand. So trying to, to round out. Yeah. What else? Typically study whatever hmm? study here. Okay. So kind of doing follow-up stuff on whatever we're doing at the church? Didn't you mention stuff like, like the much greater than the minor prophets? I could rank them for you. John, number one, every time. That's just me. I get in arguments with people. Um... That's cool. So does it is it just marching through Joshua or does it kind of hop around? It's, well, it's going through Joshua, but then the parts of Scripture that are at the same time as Joshua. Oh, that's cool. So kind of a hybrid chronological thing. That's cool. I'm embarrassed to admit that I'm chronicling the book of Psalms just as a journal prayer and praise every day. But it's not... Why is that embarrassing? I should be after 30 years of doing that. So? I mean, well, and like we could even argue over what does it mean to study deeply. I'd say people don't spend enough time in the Psalms. If it's all you ever do, you spend too much time. But it's, it's also a beautiful book. And, you know, we often say, there's no theology in the Psalms. It's just poetry. Tell that to Jesus, who constantly preached from the Psalms. So... Psalms are a good place to be. Well, I read the Bible through in a year, but that usually takes me to somewhere else. Like, I, you know, 
life situations of like, help me love my family. And so love is kind of putting me back in there, kind of inviting into Christ. So I've been hanging out in John 15 as well, just like, what does it really mean to abide in Christ? And just seeing all the places that it abided in there and how to you know, kind of love it in. Because I don't know how to manage my family at all or, you know, different situations. And still be anxious about it, too. It just takes me back to the Matthew Sermon on the Mount. That's good. So do you do that with like a centerline reference or is it just, oh, that reminds me of? Um, all different ways. I mean, I have to know my open Bible study, the blue letters. I mean, I I have a canvas thing that's full of Bibles. I have every translation in different study Bibles. It's kind of, you know, bouncing around. That's cool. John Piper had this thing a while back that was just talking about like just, you know, not having to read such big sections and just like kind of focus in on just a couple of verses at a time. I get caught reading and reading and reading and reading and trying to go back and watch the book, you know, knowing what yeah. the whole context is. Yeah, yeah. There's there's something to say for the intentionality that comes with burying how you engage the scriptures. So there's meditating on one verse. There's studying one passage over and over. There's, I I think you'd be shocked how enjoyable it is to sit down and just read a whole book. Like it takes it takes me an hour and forty five minutes to read John's gospel, and so I take like a snack break in the middle, but. Like, I love that me and Matthew take snack breaks. Um, I love sitting down and just, like, feasting on the whole thing. And then coming back, I'll actually kind of put little check marks in my Bible along. Hey, I need to come back to that. I'm going to come back and kind of look at that. Um, my wife does. It's like a, I don't know what, it's like a John MacArthur something or other that she found. Um, Basically, she reads small books like Ephesians or Colossians, the whole thing every day for 30 days, and then starts a new book. And so at the end of October, she knows Ephesians. She's probably got most of it memorized on accident. And she'll move on to 1 Thessalonians, read the whole thing every day for 30 days. Um, She really enjoys it. I keep telling her I'll be impressed when you pick a big book, but... Or even break it up. Read a big book once through in a week. To read it four times a month. That'd be awesome. So. The Bible Project is great. If you, if you, um, if you have a Right Now account, um, if you don't, let me know. If you do, this is just uh, the Bible Project. They have two or three series. They have the Wisdom series. They have the Old Testament series. They have the New Testament. They have the Gospels. They have all these different series. They do this for probably 10 or 15 books of the Bible, maybe more. And it is really helpful to, in effect, like me reading through the Gospel of John in a a hair under two hours, why don't I just let them draw it for me in 15 minutes? Both can be helpful. Yeah. Whatever we're studying in church, that kind of guides me from Sunday school and, and uh, also women's encounter being challenged to read out of Matthew. So that's my time. So kind of like what Eric does, like I want to I take what I'm getting elsewhere and deepen it, go, go further. Yeah, no, I like that. I think I'll, I just want us all to feel the weight of um, how intentional we are with so many things and how it's easy to not be so with this. Um, last night I got to go to a, um, a rite of passage ceremony for Rachel's got two cousins. She's got a million cousins. She's got two of them that turned um, 16, two young men that turned 16 this last month. And so um, Matthew and I drove down to the family farm in Eufaula yesterday, and we had there's this big rite of passage ceremony, you know, hours of shooting guns, eating meat, and then we had the elders, which I'm now an elder, which I really like. We had the elders speak very on various topics to these young men. And Rachel's dad did a masterful job of just saying like, that godly men are those who will sit down and wait on the Lord, and who will carve out time to hear Him, and who will carve out time to hear His truth. And he said, godly men 
We'll also work hard. We'll also protect. We'll also provide. But it's amazing how easy it is to do those at the expense of sitting down and waiting on the Lord. We can fill our life with these other things, but we won't sit down and, and wait on the Lord. And, and then he said, bad habits are easy to start, incredibly hard to break. Good habits are miserable to start and so easy to break. And he just sat there and challenged these, these young men. If you won't start the habit of sitting down and waiting on the Lord now, good luck trying to do it when your life gets really busy with wives and children and schools and jobs and all these things. He said, build in the good habit now. And um, I think Isaiah is a great place to do such things. But if you... Uh, if you want to have an exercise that will probably uh, be really convicting, go home today and write down, this is how I study the Bible. This is when, this is what I'm studying, these are the tools I use, this is how much time I devote to it. And then flip that over and say, this is how I focus on my job or whatever it is you do most of the time of your life. You'll be amazed at how one is likely approached with a lot more intentionality than the other. And then let the spirit punch you in the throat. <laughs> so, um, let me pray, and then you guys can get out. And we have Drew Moss preaching today on singleness. Um, Jim's constantly running joke for the last couple of weeks is that Drew got that one because we couldn't believe that he would ever get married. So, uh, be praying for Amy, I suppose. And then uh, Drew's, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be very, very good. So, God, thank you for um, another, another Lord's Day together. Uh, may we never take for granted the opportunity to gather together freely and to gather together in such great numbers. God, I, I love your people and I pray that your people here would love your church. God, we... Um, it's sobering to think that had you not thought it fit to send your servant, what we have here wouldn't exist. The life we have by the power of the Spirit in us wouldn't exist. And so we look at passages like Isaiah 53, and I pray that we would behold them, that we would marvel at how good you are, at how surprising you are, at how sovereign, providential, merciful, and powerful you are. And we thank you for those things. Teach us to love your scriptures more than we do now and teach us to love the truth that we find because in them we find you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.